The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Police still say that you are not a suspect in this case. Do you feel that you are not a suspect in this investigation? I have no idea. I, I, I mean, I know what I was told on the night of the 14th. And that's should, you, should you be a suspect in this investigation? I don't know. I mean, I... I, I they have to look at who they have to look at, and I understand that. I, I'm sure there's a lot of suspects in the case. All I know is what I was told that first night. Is but I gotta go. No, no, I, I have to go. How difficult is it? Sorry, I have to go. That you're cooperating? No, I, I, my shop is right down here. I, I brought it in. Excuse me. Um, How difficult has this been for the kids? Very. I mean, I, I mean, but to some extent, I guess they just have to. It's the kids. You know what I mean? And I really. Then stay out of it. Stephen, what would you say to Tara's mother and sister? I know your relationship with them has been strained. What would you say to them today? Um, nothing. Previously, in part one of the Tara Grant case, you heard how Stephen and Tara Grant met and fell in love and were living what appeared to be the all-American dream. That is, until Tara mysteriously vanished and her husband took to the media, pleading for his wife's safe return. However, detectives working on the case had their suspicions of Stephen and finally managed to obtain a warrant to search the Grant residence after a local discovered a bag containing human blood. Join me now as we continue to look further into Tara's sudden disappearance and reveal the shocking truth about what happened to her. Back at the Grant home, detectives were methodically searching room by room. Detective Kozlowski was finally able to get his hands on the home computer and also managed to locate Farina's diary. But it was what he found in Stephen and Tara's bedroom that he found most concerning. Along with stashes of cash, thousands of dollars and some bundles, he also found duct tape. Worst of all, was a peephole located in the couple's closet, which looked directly into the nanny's bedroom. As the forensic team took photos, Kozlowski decided to give them some space and went into the garage. While he stood there, looking at all the typical things you might expect to find in a garage, he noticed one bin in particular that was out of place. He didn't recall it being there the last time they visited and instantly became curious of it. As he opened the bin, he noticed several garbage bags. As he pushed into the bags, there was some give. Never could he have imagined the horror he was about to uncover when he opened the bag. Inside, he saw what appeared to be a pair of pants. As he carefully reached further inside, the pant legs appeared to be folded in half. The bottom of the pant legs folded up to the waist. As his eyes followed up the pant leg, he was shocked to see a woman's navel. Inside the garbage bag, was Tara Grant's torso. Her legs, arms, and head had been removed. 
everyone who knew and loved Tara, along with the entire country, had been praying for answers to her disappearance. But no one was prepared for this. Detectives had what they needed to arrest Grant now, but there was one problem. He had disappeared. George Hunter remembers the moment he heard about it because he received a frantic call from Stephen's ex-girlfriend, Dina Hardy. I got a call from Dina Hardy, the woman who had originally given me those emails. She was scared to death. She's like, I'm afraid he's going to come for me because he's mad that, you know, I gave those emails up. So there was a lot of moving parts going on. He's on the run. I was up until probably 4.30 and I staked out his dad's shop. Police were there, you know, um, looking at it. I'll never forget that. It's just, you know, just sitting there till four in the morning. And then it was just, you know, sit and wait, want to see if any new developments happen. Stephen Grant was now a fugitive. After searching a few places, detectives thought he might be. They then arrived at Stephen's sister's house. His sister told detectives that he had been there but left. She didn't know where he went. It was time for the police to step back and regroup. They got to work immediately at securing an arrest warrant. The sheriff held another press conference early Saturday morning, finally announcing to the public that Stephen Grant was in fact their number one and only suspect. He went on to say that he was on the run and considered armed and dangerous. He also spoke about the disturbing and heartbreaking discovery of Terra's torso. It was announced that there would be another search of the park and that more information would be forthcoming. In the meantime, Kozlowski would receive a phone call that would change everything. Farina was calling from Germany. She wanted to tell the detective that she heard from Stephen and what she was about to tell him was a bombshell. She told Kozlowski that Stephen had called her and told her that he was planning on killing himself. She then confessed about their sexual relationship, which had consummated on the very night Tara went missing. Furthermore, she had admitted that Stephen had confessed that he had killed Tara. He claimed it was in self-defense and that Tara had enraged him and he had to push her to keep her away from him and she fell and hit her head. Kozlowski now had his confession and mountains of evidence building up. They just needed to find Stephen. Hours later, while police were searching the Stony Creek Metro Park again, they began finding body parts. They quickly began collecting all they could find and were in complete and utter shock at what they were discovering. Nobody could understand how Stephen could be on TV crying about his missing wife and begging her to come home while behind the scenes was dismembering and disposing of his wife's body. It was worse than anything any of the detectives involved had ever dealt with in their entire careers. George Hunter spoke to the sheriff who led the search. The sergeant who led that search, he had, he actually had the bag, you know, where the parts were being put in, and the head was one of the first things he found. He said it was really very disconcerting. I can't even imagine. He's, the guy must have nightmares to this day about that. It wasn't until the following day that Kozlowski got the call he'd been waiting for. Stephen's sister called and said Stephen was up north. She told him that Stephen and Tara had once vacationed up at a place called Waugashin's Cabins. The cabins were located in Wilderness State Park, way up north in Emmett County. So Kozlowski called the Emmett County Sheriff's Department and told them that Stephen was likely up there and asked if they could send a team out to look for him. Deputies there quickly searched the perimeter of the park and began evacuating nearby residents as well as campers inside the park. 
Meanwhile, as all this was transpiring, Stephen was driving around aimlessly. He didn't know where to go, and the pills he took were starting to take effect. He knew he wanted to die, but every idea he came up with had its flaws. If he stepped out in front of a truck and died, the driver would have to live with the guilt of killing someone, and there weren't any bridges high enough to jump from in the area. As he drove around, he was popping Vicodin and drinking whiskey, feeling panicked about what to do. Along the way, he made several stops, purchasing very seemingly random items. A burner phone, calling cards, sleeping pills, razors, a cap gun, a notepad, a black magic marker, Jack Daniels, and some Bailey's Irish cream. He figured at this point, he was going to kill himself with the rest of the pills and liquor, and if he got pulled over, he would pull out the cap gun, which he had colored with the black magic marker, and die suicide by cop. While driving around, Stephen remembered a trip he and Tara had taken up north at Wilderness State Park, and thought that was the perfect place to die. He called his sister to check on the kids, and then called his lawyer, David Grimm, several times. Grimm finally answered at 1 a.m. Stephen told him that he planned on killing himself and spoke angrily that things had got to this point. He blamed Tara as he wept into the phone. He told Grimm that Tara had treated them like crap and that she had cheated on him, left them alone, and that they had meant nothing to her. Grimm tried to talk some sense into him, assuring him that he would defend him and help him through this, but he needed to tell him where he was. But Stephen refused. He told his lawyer to tell his kids he loved them, and that he tried to be a good dad, and then hung up. But that wouldn't be the last time Grimm would hear from Stephen. Two hours later, he called his lawyer again. This time, he was mostly talking gibberish and was definitely intoxicated. He told Grimm again that he planned on killing himself. After hanging up a second time, Grimm knew he had to call the police. By this point, the weather there was nearly whiteout conditions in some places, making driving extremely difficult. At one point, Stephen stopped at a casino and headed to the front desk of the hotel. He wanted to get a few hours of sleep, but the hotel was sold out. As he headed up north, he decided to stop at a truck stop, where he tried to get some sleep. When he woke up, it was 8 a.m., and he went into the store and discovered that the Detroit News had a picture of him on the front page. He knew it was all over now. There was no getting out of what he knew the police had found in his garage. Once again, Stephen managed to get himself turned around a few more times before finally riding his way back towards the north. The effects of the pills, combined with the booze, adrenaline, and lack of sleep were really getting to Stephen, and he was becoming more depraved with each passing minute. Finally, after several hours, he arrived at the Wilderness Park entrance. It was the first place Tara and Stephen had taken a road trip to. He felt it was a good place to end everything. He then called Kelly and told her where he was and that he planned on taking his life. Next, he wrote a letter to his children. I know that you two don't understand yet what has happened to mom and I. When you get older, Aunt Kelly can explain better. For now, though, just know that I love you both more than anything in the world. Because I don't want to put anyone through more suffering, I have decided to end my life. He thought if he just drank enough alcohol and took enough pills, 
he could fall asleep and freeze to death. Stephen then jumped from the truck and walked into the blizzard that had descended on the surrounding forest. By this time, a bulletin had gone out, updating police that the truck they were looking for was a yellow Dodge Dakota pickup. Police up north continued their evacuation of the park and nearby residents when Emmett County Sheriff Pete Whalen received a call from someone passing by the park that had noticed a yellow pickup parked just outside the entrance. He sent a deputy out, and the plates were run, and came back matching the truck they were looking for. Sheriff Whalen immediately contacted Detective Kozlowski and informed him that they had located the truck, and were pretty sure they had narrowed down Stephen's location to being inside the park. It didn't take long before police were swarming the area, looking for Stephen. It was one of the biggest manhunts that Emmett County had ever seen. But even officers on snowmobiles were having a difficult time navigating through the bitter wind and snowy conditions. Once winds had died off, a helicopter was also sent out to try and track down Stephen. Like breadcrumbs, as Stephen was walking, he dropped items he had taken with him from the truck. When police finally found him, he was hiding under a thick pine tree. George Hunter recalls when he first heard about his capture. They found him like wandering around with his shoes off. He'd gotten uh, frostbite and, and hypothermia and that makes you disoriented and it makes you feel hot. So he was actually stripping his clothes off and he was in knee deep snow up there. You know, he would have probably died if he'd have been left out there much longer. So the police found him there sitting under a tree. I guess he was just waiting to die. Uh, they had a medevac uh, helicopter airlifted him out of there. Once at the hospital, Additional police were assigned to Stevens' room, while deputies from the Macomb County Sheriff's Department drove up north to retrieve him. While all this was happening, Kozlowski faxed a copy of the open murder arrest warrant to Stevens' attorney, David Grimm. Almost immediately, Grimm withdrew as counsel for Stephen, citing irreconcilable differences. When Macomb County deputies arrived, they were ordered to sit with Stephen, but not to let him talk, because Grimm had withdrawn as his attorney. Kozlowski could now talk to him, but he wanted to do things by the book, and not damage his case. However, Stephen seemed to want to talk. He continuously brought up the case, and the deputies had to keep telling him to stop. One of the deputies called Kozlowski and told him that Stephen really seemed to want to talk. Kozlowski had them inform Stephen that his attorney had withdrawn from his case. And Stephen replied that he wanted to talk to Kozlowski. So Kozlowski then called Detective McLean and the two of them headed north to see about getting a direct confession from Stephen. When Detectives Kozlowski and McLean arrived at the hospital to interview Stephen, they were amazed he was so chatty and willing to speak to them. He began his chilling tale, starting on February 9th, the day he had actually murdered his wife. On February 9th, 2007, Tara came home about 10 or 10.05. We had been discussing her travel schedule. While she was unpacking, words were exchanged about returning a day early. I made a comment about her and Lou always traveling together. She said, why do I always bring that up? I said something to make her turn away, something mean. When she turned, I grabbed her left wrist and she said something about, what, what are you going to start hitting me? I left her wrist go and said I wouldn't do anything like that. She said she knew I didn't have it in me and I said I wouldn't sink to that level of a two-bit whore. It was hateful and messy, but I was lashing out with my own words. 
I wanted to say the meanest thing I could think of. My statement resulted in Tara smacking me. I then pushed her, making her fall back against the wall or wood floor. I thought I had hit her. I meant to push her chest. I think I pushed her throat near her neck. Because she fell, she started cussing at me, telling me she would take the kids and house and I was going to jail and I would become the loser. She knew I always was. I then grabbed her neck to make her stop talking. Instead, I find myself squeezing and choking her with my right hand. At some point, I realized she was looking at me, so I took a shirt or underwear and covered her face and held them there. On Sunday the 11th, I took Tara's trooper to the shop and decided to fit her into a large Rubbermaid container. Stephen then continued by going through the gruesome account of how he went about dismembering his wife's body. I wrapped the pieces in plastic bags and put them, the torso, and all supplies back into the container. It all fit. Monday morning, I found a spot near Stony Creek Nature Area, power lines, and hid the evidence. I came back and later distributed the body parts, attempted to hide them under logs and trees. 20 days later, Stephen decided he needed to retrieve Tara's torso. On Saturday the 24th, I went out very early to recover the torso because I hadn't hidden it well. I took it to my shop and left it there until March 1st at night. I got it and planned on burying it, but my house was searched on March 2nd. He couldn't have predicted that his house would be searched the very next day. Detectives were disgusted as Stephen recounted what had happened, appearing to show no emotion. He remained in northern Michigan at the hospital for several more days before being transferred back to the Macomb County Jail to await trial. Freelance journalist and author Steve Miller recalls the first time he became involved with the Tara Grant case. I came upon the uh, Stephen Grant story when I was assigned by People Magazine to cover the uh, arrest of Stephen Grant in a small town in uh, northern Michigan. It was the dead of winter. It was so cold. It was just miserable out. But they said, yeah, can you just go up to Petoskey? He's going to do, they thought he'd do a perp walk. He'd go out there and talk to some folks. I believe I talked to the sheriff up there. They wanted to find out the, uh, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the capture itself. Miller wanted to fully grasp what Stephen Grant had experienced before he was captured. I wanted to know what he went through, so I drove the route that I, after the sheriff told me, I drove the route that he had told me that they believed Grant had taken. And so I went out there and I waited till nighttime, which was at the time that he was out there. And I'll tell you what, boy, he was, uh, he was in a tough spot because it was cold, it was dark, it was blowing. It was just miserable. And for somebody to be running away from, you know, the cops and trying to elude somebody in that weather, was, it's unthinkable. Stephen wouldn't face trial until late November 2007. He was appointed two well-known defense attorneys. But there was no really helping Stephen once it was ruled that the photos of Tara's mutilated body and Stephen's taped confession with detectives would be admitted at the trial. Stephen ended up pleading guilty before the trial to the mutilation charges, but decided to go to trial for the murder charge. While the trial was underway, reporters raced around each day to secure a spot in the courthouse, including Detroit News crime reporter George Hunter. Judge Drzezinski was a, is a good judge, and these cases can turn into a circus really easily. You know, I mean, I'm going to point the finger at my profession that, that's in large part responsible for that. It's just easy to devolve into just a circus. Well, she ran a really, really tight ship to make sure that didn't happen. And, you know, at times it felt a little heavy handed, but in retrospect, I understand why she did it. But I mean, it did get a little ridiculous. For instance, during the initial voir dire of the, uh, of the jury pool and things like that, 
she had the deputies, the court deputies had papers where everyone was allowed to sit and we were put in the last row. So there's nobody in the courtroom and we we're sitting there in this one little truncated, it was the handicap access one. So there's like, it's like a third of the row has been cut off so to allow wheelchair. So we were given that row and we were sitting there elbow to elbow, you know, just tucked there. There wasn't enough room for all of us. There was literally nobody else in the courtroom. But the deputies weren't allowed to let us sit anywhere else in the courtroom because that was our designated spot. You know, so that he got permission later on. It wasn't his fault. He's doing what his boss told him to do. And then later on that day after the break, uh, you know, but it was kind of like, look, there's no one here. This is stupid. But that was, that was the judge's rules. We went, the, the, the case started, I believe at 830 and you weren't allowed out of the courtroom. If you left to go to the bathroom, you could not get back in until. The next, you know, the, she held a, a morning break, then a lunch, then an afternoon break. And it was like a military precision. She ran the courtroom like that. Like I said, at the time, it was annoying, you know, in many ways. You know, if I got to go to the bathroom, I should be allowed to go back to the courtroom, you know. But she just didn't want people running in and out, which tends to happen. And so we an interesting um, aside here is that we were told no cell phones, you know, that we couldn't couldn't text or couldn't do anything. Well, you know. So we brought our cell phones into the courtroom the first you know, day of testimony, and I look over and I see two reporters, but they're texting updates to their for their website. Well, I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to be the only one here not doing this. I did it too, you know. I kind of surreptitiously start to, you know, I mean, once once they did it, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to be the only guy not giving updates to my media outlet. So I started doing it. I'll admit it, and they busted us. So that from then on, we had to actually physically give our cell phones to the bailiff or the, the court deputy before the case, and then we picked them up afterward. George gave us some perspective on what it's like to cover a murder case. You know, when you're dealing with that kind of a case, it gets tricky because you have family involved. To the editors, often these are abstract, you know, that, hey, we need more for the story. We need to keep the story alive. You know, in a case like this, there was a lot of late breaking news, so there was we didn't need an excuse but, you know, on slow days, it's like, well, what do you got for tomorrow? And you tell them there's nothing for tomorrow. Well, we need a story for tomorrow. And so then you got to go bugging the family. And, you know, th- these people want to be left alone. It, there's a, definitely an art form to dealing with grieving family members. It's, it's something that the, often the media can be disrespectful and, and not intentionally so in many cases. You know, they just they want their story and, and their producer or their editor is pushing them for a story. So you got to go knock on their door, you know. And if it's a politician who's alleged wrongdoing, I'll stay on his doorstep all night. I don't care because he's a public servant. You know, he's compelled to to let the public know what he's up to. And, you know, that's part of my job as a watchdog. But when it's a grieving family member, they're not required, nor should they be. You know, I, I my human feeling is we should leave them alone, you know. Um, so you, you got to approach them really respectfully and, and that. And one of the things in this case that will, another um, example of how it was handled right was the family made basically her, Tara's sister, Alicia Standifer, um, was kind of the official spokesperson for the family. And I always advocate that families in a high profile case, they should do that because we don't want to bother the mom. You know, so if you make kind of one person the spokesperson, it, it achieves the same thing that the sheriff did with, with his press conferences. That way we can call the designated family spokesperson and get what we need. And we don't have to bother the grieving mother. You know, I think that's a good idea. And they handled that in the right way. While the trial continued, freelance journalist Steve Miller also continued sending dispatches over to People magazine, while he himself became more curious as to who Stephen Grant really was. He felt he was being portrayed one way in the media and sought out to write something he hoped would be an objective account of everything that had happened. I started going to some of these minor court hearings leading up to the trial, and it was about 90 miles. I'd go down to the courthouse. I noticed that there was a, a woman that was sitting in the courtroom kind of by herself. Sometimes she was accompanied by a gentleman, and nobody talked to her. You know, she was, uh, she seemed all alone. So I asked somebody who it was. And so that's Kelly. That's uh, Stephen's sister. And so after one of the hearings, I just went up and introduced myself and, uh, and I said, you know, I'd love to take you to coffee or something, you know, and, uh, and so on. And it, essentially, I think I gained her trust. And uh, so through Kelly over the next few months, I just kind of became friendly, I suppose, or at least accepted. 
and that led us eventually to uh, to meeting uh, Grant, the killer. Once the trial was over, Miller got his chance to meet face-to-face with Stephen. In the meantime, as the trial continued, Stephen Grant remained surprisingly quite composed. He sat stoic and never took the stand. Detroit News crime reporter George Hunter recalls the media anxiously waiting for the 19-year-old nanny Verena to testify. The, the big bombshell, I believe, was Verena, the au pair. That was the thing everybody was waiting for, and, and that was kind of the bombshell in that case was, was her and talking about their relationship and how Stephen used to sneak up on her, and it was really creepy, you know. She'd be sitting at her desk writing letters home or something, and she'd feel her hackles on the back of her neck, and she'd turn around, and there he'd be in the doorway. And then later on, when he started actively flirting with her, he'd, he'd you know, oops, my pants fell down, ha, 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 you know. Yeah, stuff like that. And like I said, later on, it was discovered he had drilled a hole from one of the adjacent rooms to the au pair's room so he could watch them undress. And that's why one of them, I believe she was from Russia, she left because she felt like he was spying on her. She really felt creepy. A couple of their old pairs had left, you know, for that reason that he just, he gave them the willies, you know. After a very long and grueling trial, the jury deliberated for 15 long hours. They came back with a guilty verdict. However, it was not the one everyone had hoped for. Stephen Grant was convicted on second-degree murder charges which meant that he may face the possibility of parole in his lifetime. It was completely unimaginable that this jury didn't agree on first-degree premeditation, which only had to be proved by showing he had the chance to stop and didn't. And that was kind of a crucial point in in the court case later on as to whether this was going to be first- or second-degree murder because there is precedent that a strangulation is considered first degree because the uh, legally they say you had enough time to reflect on what you did. First degree murder has to be premeditated. And the argument, which he's rejected actually ultimately because he was convicted of second degree, was that, um, was that he had time to think about his actions. In closing arguments, Prosecutor Smith deliberately started a stopwatch and listened to complete silence for over three minutes. He reminded the jury how long three minutes really is and that it is a sufficient amount of time to stop the act of murdering someone by strangulation. Despite their best efforts and arguments, though, the jury was not convinced. Stephen's defense team had argued that the way he disposed of Tara's body was also an indication that the murder hadn't been premeditated and that he had panicked. When he attempted to take Tara's body parts down a hill to hide them in the park, they started falling off the sled he was transporting them on. George Hunter explains what he did next. Here's where the defense made the argument that this was not premeditated because it's rushing around, picking up these body parts, and then he doesn't know what to do, so he just starts throwing them in different directions. And that was later the successful defense, that how could you call this premeditated when he clearly panicked, he didn't know what he was doing, he just chucked these parts. Stephen had his sentencing hearing set for February of 2008. In his sentencing memorandum, Prosecutor Smith requested that the judge depart from the recommended sentencing guidelines, which calls for a sentence of 18 and three quarters of a year, up to 31 and one quarter of a year in prison. Smith was requesting the judge sentence Grant to 50 to 80 years in prison due to the serious nature of the crime, but also because of the psychological effect the crime had on their children. George Hunter explains how this becomes an important factor in sentencing in the U.S. Here in the United States, the impact that the crime had on the victims will play into how long you get. Uh, so, So independent of the crime itself, and that was why during that time they said that the kids actually witnessed the murder. That detail came out 
pre-sentencing because that would certainly, you know, make it make it worse for the victims if they actually saw this. And the judge did hand down a pretty stiff sentence of 50 to 80 years. I believe his earliest parole date, he'll be 80-something years old when he's eligible for parole. 2057. The judge agreed with the prosecutor and sentenced Stephen to 50 to 80 years in prison. The children were left in the sole custody of Tara's sister. However, they sometimes had visitations by Stephen's sister, Kelly. It was all over for Stephen, and he lost all of his appeals. But for the children and Tara's family, it would never be the same because they were missing a vital part of their lives. After Stephen's sentencing, Tara's sister Alicia, who had been the spokesperson for the family, made a statement to the public. Tara Grant, my sister, was a wonderful mother, loving wife, and a professional woman who was well on her way to a very successful life and career. She did everything in her power to provide for her family, and her smile and personality will live forever in our hearts. The people of Macomb County have been extremely supportive of my family since this ordeal began back in February. Tara may have lived and ultimately died in Macomb County, but one thing is for certain. Her smile impacted everyone she interacted with, and her spirit will live on, and her voice will continue to be heard. doubt that my sister's life was taken due to the direct result of domestic violence. Even though Tara's life was ultimately taken due to physical violence, she suffered years of mental abuse, which permanently scarred her, and in many respects, mental abuse is much worse because the scars are deeper and they're invisible. It goes without saying that I miss my sister with all my heart, and she will be severely missed by my mother and my father and by our entire family, and especially her two children, Lindsay and Ian, for the rest of our lives. Upon learning of your death, Tara, I made a promise to you that Lindsay and Ian are going to be well taken care of, and the job at hand now is to love and nurture them in a way that you would have wanted. It is imperative that my sister's death not be taken in vain, but in fact serves as a lightning rod for additional resources and increased awareness towards the prevention of potential future tragedies. Each of us will likely be influenced by domestic violence in our lives to a certain extent, ultimately with both incidents ending in something far less than a murder. Tara was a strong and proud woman. But ultimately, she could not overcome her own struggle with domestic violence. My family will forever be influenced by this tragedy, but we will recover. I guarantee you of that. We will continue to bring awareness to domestic violence. Serving, I will personally serve as my sister's voice in the best manner that I know. I want to again thank everyone involved and ask that we as a society bring in heightened awareness towards domestic violence, specifically mental abuse. And to Tara, your voice, your strength, and your perseverance to make it to the top, both personally and professionally, will continue. And I will promise to be your voice. I love you, big sis. Thank you. Stephen Grant's sister, Kelly, also had an opportunity to make a statement. I'm sure that he's just, uh, you know, relieved that this, you know, is over with and we can, you know, start the healing process for, you know, all families that are involved. You know, we lost our sister-in-law. This has been very traumatic for all parties involved. So, you know, we just want to move forward, our family. If you could talk to him, what would you say to him? Um, I would just tell him, you know, that our, our prayers are with him, like always. Our thoughts are with him. Um, we just, you know, want him to, you know, try to keep his mental health together and 
to move forward. Right there at that microphone, Alicia said that we in the media and just about anybody else really don't know who Stephen Grant was before this crime. Help us understand that. He was, you know, my brother. My, um, you know, I've known him for 30 almost 38 years, but I would have never expected this. I didn't expect it. I didn't know he did it before anybody else did. You know, I wouldn't have expected that. I don't think anybody that has a member of their family that commits a crime expects that to happen. Um, so, you know, he was a normal person. He was a loving father, um, a normal kid growing up, a normal kid in high school, a normal person in college. Um, you know, he was a loving, doting father. After Stephen went to prison, freelance journalist Steve Miller finally had an opportunity to meet with him. By this time, Miller was well on his way to writing a book about the murder case and was attempting to find out all he could about Terrence Stephen and what led up to that fateful night. The first time I met him, he was at uh, Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility, which is in a place, a little town called Ionia, a little farm town. He had been processed. He was in the system. I was on his visitor list. They had contact visits there, and I could go into the uh, visitor room, and I, uh, I shook his hands, and uh, he was in his prison outfit. One of the first things that Stephen told me was that he deserved to be where he was. He said, I deserve to be here because I killed my wife. There was never an excuse. As we know, there is no excuse. So I think he'd, he'd faced that, and I think very quickly he came to terms with the fact that he still couldn't believe that it all happened. But he was figuring it out, and again, he'd, he'd said, he said this several times, where I deserve to be here. We asked Miller if he had discussed with Stephen how he came up with the gruesome plan of dismembering his wife's body. He had a relative who had property over on the west side of Michigan, and it was remote property. And he told me that while after he had killed her and before he did the cutting up, he had thought that he might go over there, but he couldn't figure out how to get out of town undetected. And and he was really kind of trying to figure this out. And he said during that that one day, uh, there was I think it was two days after the killing. He was absolutely, he said, in a panic. He said it was such a blur that he, he said he didn't even understand what was going on in his head. And, uh, and he was in a complete, utter panic. So he realized he couldn't get, uh, it was probably about a three-hour drive, maybe a little more, three hours, to, to, to that part of the, the state for where he could do a body dump. And so then he uh, somehow just came upon this idea and he didn't really, he couldn't explain how he constructed the whole scenario. Throughout Tara's disappearance, Stephen boldface lied to absolutely everyone as to what had really happened to her, concocting one lie after another. And so he was portrayed in the media afterward as a pathological liar. We asked Steve Miller how much truth he felt he got from Stephen during his interviews with him. Well, people would tell me that people I'd talked to that knew him, they said, oh, yeah, he's a compulsive liar. Overall, in his presentation, I didn't. I never felt that he was trying to, to, to BS me, as most prisoners do. Most criminals will, almost, will, always, will always lie to you. That's just what they do, because they know they're living a lie, and so, therefore, that's what they do. I think in Grant's case, he'd already been convicted. He'd already come to terms as, this is where I got to be. This is part of my deal. And uh, this is this, this is life now, and so I think maybe that's uh, why he he's never seemed to be a either you know maybe he's a great liar. But when I would try to ver when I'd go and verify what he told me, it would always pan out. Uh, the only things I couldn't, of course, I couldn't. There's no way to verify the nature of the marriage. I mean, other than to to you know to talk to other people about it. Carol was laid to rest in Escanaba, Michigan, where she was born. Her sister Alicia formally adopted her children, and they eventually moved to Wisconsin, where they lived with her and her husband and their two other children. 
For the past decade, they've returned to Macomb County to honor Tara with the Tara Walk, which has been held at Freedom Hill County Park in Sterling Heights, Michigan. The walk is meant to raise awareness for domestic violence and maintain the memory of Tara. Alicia was quoted in the Macomb Daily newspaper saying, That's why we come here every year. People identify in Tara's story because she had such a normal life and it was taken away from her. Turning Point are sponsors of the event, an organization that is dedicated to helping women in domestic violence situations by assisting them with safety planning, danger assessments, and other resources. At one of Tara's walks, Alicia gave an emotional speech that was quoted by Detroit News saying, I witnessed the controlling behavior, but was so naive and afraid to step up and say anything to that loved one. Tara was murdered at the hands of her husband, and we knew we had to use what happened to her to make something better of it. The granddaughter, who is now 17 years old, was quoted saying, My mom would really be proud of what's going on. She would not want her death to be unimportant. She would want people to understand that situations do happen, and it unfortunately takes one person to lose their life for other people to get the courage to understand. Their son, who is now 15 years old, said, It's preventable, and even if you're not directly affected by domestic violence, you can still help someone who is. It's remarkable that this family has taken such an incredibly tragic experience in their lives and turned it around to ensure that Tara's memory lives on by helping others. We were thankful to discover that both of the Grant's children are thriving with their new family and we wish them a bright and successful future. I would like to thank freelance journalist and author Steve Miller for taking the time to share his insights with us into the Tara Grant's case. I'd like to encourage you to check out his book, which delves into the case in much more detail called A Slain in the Suburbs, and you'll find a link to it in our show notes. I'd also like to thank crime news reporter George Hunter for taking us behind the scenes covering missing person cases and murder trials. George has also written a book about his experiences covering this case called Limb from Limb, and you can also find a link to it in the show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank Tim Pillory, who voiced Stephen's confession letter. Tim is one of the hosts for Crawl Space and Missy Moore Murray, two incredible podcasts, and I hope you'll check them out. And now I'd like to introduce two podcasts, Crime Sphere. Hi, this is Jamie Rice. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to check out our podcast, Crime Sphere. In every episode of Crime Sphere, we discuss what's happening in the world of true crime news and media. Whether it's the new true crime TV show everyone's talking about, or that fantastic Netflix documentary that you're ready to binge on. Or maybe it's that exciting podcast that you need to know about. Whatever it is, we've got you covered. And on Crime Sphere, we bring you in-depth interviews with some of the biggest names in true crime. Like the one with Paul Holes, who helped bring down the Golden State Killer. And, uh, you know, it was very satisfying to be within Sack Sheriff's office and seeing uh, D'Angelo being brought in in handcuffs and being tucked away in that interview room. Or the one with attorney David Rudolph, who represented Michael Peterson in The Staircase. And on there, uh, I give a, a sort of my inside view on each of the episodes of The Staircase. And the final one is uh, my view on, on the uh, owl theory. 
It might even be a talk with one of your favorite true crime podcasters. Justin and I were basically the first to have two hosts covering true crime, and we kind of had to learn as we went. You never know who's going to drop by Crime Sphere to talk some true crime. New episodes of Crime Sphere drop every other Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe today and don't miss an episode. And the hidden staircase. Close your eyes and imagine a room. There's a secret door. A staircase that descends into darkness. A room filled with terrible wonders. It is a library of mysteries, a catalog of terrors. Join us bi-weekly down the hidden staircase for stories and cases you probably haven't heard of. You can find the hidden staircase on iTunes, Spotify, or any podcatcher. Don't forget to lock your doors and hold tight to your flashlight. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E